0: This morning, we're continuing our look at uh, the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we just started looking at Mark's Gospel, but if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 1, because in Mark chapter 1, we're going to see some uh, very interesting things about the nature of authority and what authority looks like as, uh, as the Lord demonstrates His authority, as He gives us His guidance, as He gives us... His grace as he invites us to to respect his authority and not fight against his authority. And we're in Mark chapter 1. We're going to be picking up at verse 21, and I'm going to read down to verse 34. But this is what it says in that passage of scripture It says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority They were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, Lord, we thank you so much for the privilege to be able to spend some time looking at your word together today. We're so thankful for what you reveal to us in this portion of Scripture from Mark's Gospel. We pray, Lord, that as we reflect on the nature of your authority as it is demonstrated through your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray that we would understand that it's your desire that we respect the authority of your Son, that we respect who He is and, and, and what He has done and what He continues to do, that we don't spend our lives fighting the authority of Your Son in our lives, but that we respect and honor and embrace His authority. And so, Lord, thank You so much for the privilege to be able to look at these things now. We pray that by the power of Your Holy Spirit, that You would open our eyes and our hearts to receive these truths. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So a statement that my family has often, and when I say often, I mean like almost constantly, a statement that my family has often had to hear me make is that I believe there's a song for everything. What do you think about that statement? I think there's a song for everything. Almost anything that you could come up with, I think that there's a song for. And when I say that, what I really mean is there's not, I, there isn't a single subject or a single emotion or a single circumstance at this point that, that I think someone hasn't written a song about. Somebody's written a song about it somewhere, and I often try to prove that point by immediately pointing to the song as it comes to my mind, and then playing it. You know? and, I, and my family, it, it usually goes like this. As soon as someone says something, i will be like, you know, there's a song for that. And will be like, oh no, oh no, here we go. Because they know I'm not only going to play it, I'm going to make everybody listen to it, whether they like the song or not. And having smartphones in our pockets means you can just call that song up immediately, right? best part of living during this era of history. I think someday they're going to look back and get a big kick out of that and be like, you know what, I think that was dad's primary skill in life. Um, but now, like most people, uh, some of my favorite songs were written and recorded during the era in which I was growing up. And do you ever notice that some of your favorite songs were songs kind of written and recorded during that season of your life? And I think because it's a formative season. We internalize things a little bit differently, right, as we're forming our opinions and developing into the people that we're going to be. And so a lot of times, some of the music from that particular era, it kind of starts to become the soundtrack to your life. And one of the artists from that era that remains on heavy rotation in my household is John Mellencamp. Anyone listen to John Mellencamp? All right. So, okay, like with a fist pump, John Mellencamp. All right. That's great. (laughs) Now, he had, a lot of, he had a lot of big songs in the 80s. He also had a lot of uh, really good songs in the, in the early 90s in particular. But one of his biggest songs was a song called Authority Song. Now, do you know the song? Like, can you think it in your head? Authority Song. I didn't ask our worship team to lead us off with it today. I'll bring the words up on the screen so you can see. Here's a few lyrics from it that, that stand out to me. So he says... And you got to appreciate the fact that he references his pastor in this song. But he says, so I call up my preacher and say, give me strength for round five. And he said, you don't need no strength. You need to grow up, son. That's a good line. I love that line. I sing it loud in my car. I said, growing up leads to growing old and then to dying. And dying to me don't sound like all that much fun like is that right Mellencamp well but then Mellencamp gets really reflective and really deep here and he says what I fight authority authority always wins and he's like you know what let me think about it think about it again I fight authority authority always wins and he says I've been doing it since I was a young kid and I come out grinning I fight authority authority always wins right you're welcome to the song that will be in your head for the rest of the day. I love that song. I listened to it this morning when I was shaving. It's great. Um, but yeah, so, you know, Mellencamp brings that up, brings up this idea of authority. Interestingly, by the way, in the back row over here on this side, my father's visiting with us. Thanks. He drove a couple hours to be here with us for worship. So, Dad, great to see you. And right before he came in the building he gave me a note. So is this okay if I read this to everybody? So let me just read this. He said, he said, dear son, I just wanted to send you this quick note to thank you for always being an obedient child who showed the utmost respect for my authority. Dad, this is so sweet. This is so sweet. You're, you're, oh wait, he says, This was particularly true of you from grades seven to nine, when you were never difficult. (laughs) Basically, I just want to express my appreciation for the fact that you were much better than your sisters. Well, I really, I love that line. That was good. Thanks for listening, like you always do and always have. Love, Dad. Well, thanks, Dad. I'm going to save this. I might even frame it. Thank you. I'm sorry, I'm the one with the microphone, so we're just going (laughs) to, sorry, but you're welcome to greet people after the service. (laughs) Ushers, remove the heckler, please. (laughs) Now, I suspect it's pretty fair to say we've all spent some time fighting authority, correct? All all of us, and, and pretty much any season of life, I certainly have. Over the course of my life, I've witnessed just about everybody I know do just about the same thing, again, according to the, including the man in the back row there. Uh, it's human nature to fight authority. It's human nature. We do that, right? It's human nature to elevate our own view. It's human nature to elevate our own preferences over the thoughts and over the responsibilities of those who have the privilege to lead us. And I think we often think we know better than our bosses. I think we often think we know better than our elected leaders. That part might be true. I think, we, I think we also might think we know better than our spiritual authorities. I think we go through life expecting that maybe we know better than our parents. I mean, this is just human nature. This is something that, that we wrestle with, right? We wrestle with this during the course of our life. And in fact, I don't think it's a stretch to acknowledge the fact that there have been seasons of our lives where we felt like we knew better than God himself. And I can easily prove that statement by asking a very simple question. And the simple question is this. Have you ever done the opposite of what God instructed you to do? Because if you've ever done the opposite of what God instructed you, you to do, that means that at one point or many points in your life, you have thought that you knew better than God himself. So not only is our collective answer to that question, yes, but most of us could admit to the fact that it's it's probably hard for us to think of a day in our life where we haven't done at least something where God said this, but we chose to do that. We reject his instructions. We reject his counsel. We do it in small ways. We do it in big ways. We reject authority, right? That right there demonstrates that we have an authority problem. Like Mellencamp, that great theologian in the 80s and 90s, we've been fighting authority since we were young kids, but I hope we're not grinning about it. He was grinning about it. I hope we're not grinning about it. And then you look in the Gospel of Mark, and the Gospel of Mark, what it does is it demonstrates the authority of Jesus in a variety of ways. And As we read these words, we're encouraged to respect his authority instead of fighting it And when you look at verses 21 to 22, let me reread those for us. It says this, as this section that we're looking at starts off, it says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Isn't that a beautiful line? He taught as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Now, a major facet of Jesus' earthly ministry involved teaching. When you read throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus teaching, going place to place, teaching in large crowds, teaching in buildings, teaching outside. He traveled all over doing this. He taught in the local synagogues. He taught out in the open. He wanted people to understand the message of the Gospel as he was proclaiming it. And he wanted people to experience the hope of having everlasting life through a relationship with him. So he was making this known during that era of history. And when Jesus taught those who were listening to his words couldn't help but notice a difference in the way he taught compared to the teachers that they were typically used to. The scribes that they were used to listening to, these learned men, they typically would appeal to authority outside of themselves as they were conveying their teaching. So they would read the scriptures and then quote other educated men about their opinions related to those scriptures, sometimes maybe not even taking a stand on their own, but they would just quote others and present information and sometimes just leave it to you to figure out, what am I supposed to do with this? They would present theories, they would present contrasts. it's likely that they occasionally presented theories and, and assumptions and encouraged the audience, again, to just think about it deeply, but, but some of those thoughts just hung out in the air. It just hung out there for a while without resolution or, again, without taking a definitive side. And then you look at Jesus and you look at the way that he taught and the way he spoke, and that's not how he spoke. He didn't speak like the scribes. He didn't speak like these people who sometimes were just trying to impress people with their learning instead of being helpful. By the way, if you're ever in a spot where you're called upon to speak publicly, you know how most people are terrified to do that? There is a way to get over it. And the way to get over it is this. Stop thinking about how you look when you do it. Focus on being helpful To those you're trying to speak to, it does help to overcome the nervousness. And when Jesus was speaking, he was speaking differently from the scribes because I think some of the scribes certainly had desires to be helpful, but I also think some of them just had the desire to be thought of as intelligent when they would speak in front of people. They were probably a little more concerned with how they looked than whether or not they helped. And when Jesus spoke, he was speaking in such a way because he was trying to help. He was trying to guide. He was trying to direct. When Jesus taught, he taught as one who had ultimate authority. And he explained what people needed to understand from the scriptures. He even made it clear that he was the fulfillment of the prophetic words that they were reading in these passages. Jesus spoke in a way, and this is interesting. When you look throughout the scriptures, you could see him doing this. He spoke in a way that communicates to the whole person. He spoke to the head. He spoke to the heart. And he spoke to the hands. Sometimes people say to be a person, you have to have intellect, emotion, and will. So that's head, heart, and hands. And if you look at the way Jesus spoke, he was very intentional about what he was doing. Sometimes he would say things that are meant to be contemplated in your head. Other things were meant to be felt in your heart. Other things were meant to be acted upon with your hands. So you see the head, the heart, and the hands, all all spoken to as he's communicating when he's teaching, and uh, when people heard Jesus think and, and speak out loud and, and communicate these deeper level things, they were amazed. And what many didn't realize in that context was in hearing Jesus speak, they're hearing the voice of the one who spoke creation into existence. That's what scripture reveals to us about Jesus, that he spoke creation into existence and that he sustains creation by his powerful word. Now, they're noticing as he's speaking that there's power behind his words, but they're still trying to wrestle with what this actually looks like and what this means. And those who heard him were astonished. They're astonished as they're listening to him speak. And by the way, in many respects, it can be said that our words are the most powerful things about us. Do you think that's true of you? That the words you say, you know what can outlast you? Words. You write some things down, your great-great-grandchildren could read those words, and you can have an influence in in their life through words that you leave behind, that you communicate. You can influence generations through words. You can impact the lives of people right here, right now, through the words that you say. And I think in many respects it could be said that our words, the things we speak, the things we communicate, are the most powerful things about us. Now, as people who have been created in the image of God, we've been given the capacity to use words to communicate. This is something the Lord's given us the ability to do. We could build people up or we could tear people down. By the way, it takes a lot longer to build something or someone up than it does to tear something or someone down. You could tear someone down in a moment. You could build someone up in a lifetime. Most people are wreckers, not builders. But God's people are invited to be builders as Christ demonstrates in His teaching ministry. And When I look at that and I think about the fact that we have been created in the image of God, one of the things that I think is a good takeaway from looking at how Jesus was using his words is to just take on the reminder that there is power in the words that we speak. And Jesus demonstrates this even in his own ministry. And if you're ever given a pulpit, and if you're ever given a platform from which to communicate the word of God, let me encourage you to do so with clarity, do so with accuracy, do so with enthusiasm, and do so with the authority of Jesus that he delights to lend to his people. In fact, there's multiple scriptures that speak of this, but when you look at Luke chapter 9, in Luke chapter 9, the first two verses, this is what it says. It says, and he called the 12, so he's talking about these people, these, these were his disciples, these are the, uh, the, the apostles, he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So how did he send them out to to make this proclamation? He loaned them his authority. He gave them authority. Now, what else? Well, when you look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, think about how this plays out in the local church context. This letter to Titus was written by the apostle Paul, and Paul was trying to explain a very similar concept. And he says this in this paragraph here. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. He's giving us a summary of Christian doctrine. So he says, all right, here's a good summary. For the grace of God has appeared through Jesus Christ, right, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That paragraph is a fantastic way to describe our faith. You just take that paragraph, you could basically give someone, if they're like, what's Christianity all about? Give them that paragraph. It's a, it's a beautiful summary of who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what impact that's supposed to have on your life and my life as we go about our day-to-day life. But we're supposed to tell somebody about that, right? That's not just information we're supposed to internalize in our minds. Somebody's supposed to find out about that from your lips and my lips. And so you have Paul saying to Titus, he says, declare these things. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So he's saying, he's not saying exhort and rebuke like you're the weakest person on the face of the earth, like you're just a big wimp. That's not what he says. He says, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Not authority that finds its source in you. Authority that finds its source in Jesus Christ, who fulfills all of this. And this is something that we as believers in Jesus Christ are are invited to understand. Jesus has blessed us with his authority to speak his truth in love. He's given us his authority to confront and call out the lies and the deceptions of the evil one. And we're invited to never cower from proclaiming the truth when he gives us an opportunity to make it known. But then when you go back to Mark chapter 1, you see how this develops a little bit further as this story plays out. Because now Jesus is teaching... And he's about to demonstrate this authority, this authority that people are saying, this guy speaks with authority. Well, now he's about to show them that authority in very vivid detail. And it says, and immediately, when you look at verse 23 of Mark 1, it says, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent. And come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching. And then you see the word again with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So here in this context, you have Jesus while he's speaking in the synagogue at Capernaum. We're told here that a man was demonically possessed and that man interrupted him while he was speaking. And the demon that's inhabiting this man starts crying out loudly. Now, that's obviously going to be an awkward and unsettling experience as people are seeing this happen in real time. By the way, if you're unfamiliar with the background of demons, keep in mind demons are what? They're fallen angels. These are fallen angels who had previously seen Jesus. In his unveiled glory, while Jesus was walking among us when he took on flesh, what was he doing? He was veiling his glory. But these demons, in this case this particular demon, a fallen angel, knew who he was and saw and had seen him in the past with his unveiled glory. And so even though the demonic forces and Satan have chosen to fight Christ's authority, they know exactly who he is. And I get the impression that this particular demon was attempting to interrupt the timing of what Jesus was gradually revealing about himself during that era. And I think this demon was probably also thinking about maybe provoking the spiritual leaders of the day to turn against Jesus, which they eventually do. But I think he was inviting them or trying to encourage them to turn against Jesus before he could do what he came to do. And so you have this demon calling out saying, I know who you are. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebukes him with authority. With authority, he looks at him and he says, what? Jesus rebuked him and said, be silent. Be silent, right? He told him to be silent and to come out of the man that he was tormenting. And the scripture tells us that with convulsing and with loud cries, the demon complied. But now there's a whole bunch of people that have witnessed this. They've seen this take place. And this left the rest of the people in this context convinced of the authority of Jesus. So not only is his word have his words come with authority, but now his actions are demonstrating his spiritual authority as well, and word of him begins to spread. And we think about word spreading quickly in this day and age because we have access to the internet and things like that. Well, through word of mouth, word began to spread of who Jesus is and what he came to do, and words start spreading rapidly throughout this region. And you know, let me even say this just, um, just by way of personal application. Please know that if it's your desire to see others in your life come into a strong and healthy relationship with Jesus Christ, you can participate in that effort in multiple ways, but one of the most convincing ways that you can participate in that effort is to demonstrate Christ's authority in your own life. And what I mean by that is this. When we claim to, to have met him, we claim to follow him, that's shown to be real when we when we demonstrate submission to his authority as we choose to live our day-to-day lives again you and i you know from our earliest days what have we done we've rebelled against authority well it stands out as a pretty stark contrast when someone willingly submits their life to the authority of someone else particularly jesus christ and if we claim to be followers of his That's a great opportunity to demonstrate that we actually mean those words by submitting to his authority. And at this point now in Mark's gospel, as these things are unfolding, at this point, Christ's nature and his power and the purpose of his mission were starting to become even more visible. Word of his activity was spreading. People were starting to hear about this. He was about to use the miraculous power that he has to authenticate his teaching by accomplishing even more miraculous healings. Because these miraculous healings, these things that he, were, that he was doing were demonstrations of power that were meant to reveal something about the compassionate heart of our Lord while also proving that he has authority over sickness and he has authority over death and he has authority over demons. And so in Mark chapter 1, when you get to verse 29, it tells us this. It says, and immediately he left the synagogue. So now all this has taken place. They're noticing the authority that he's speaking with. Then the demonstration of that authority when he, when he uh, heals this man of demonic possession. And he leaves the synagogue. And everybody else leaves the synagogue too. And they go around. And they start talking about this everywhere. But it says, and immediately he left the synagogue. And Jesus specifically entered the house of Simon. So Simon, that's Peter. Simon Peter. It says he entered the house of Simon and Andrew. Andrew's his brother. Uh, entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So this is his activity immediately after these events that took place in the synagogue. And you have Jesus going to the home of Simon Peter, Peter's mother-in-law very ill, Jesus heals her, immediately she begins serving Jesus and his disciples. And I love reading that example in particular because I think a lot of times people miss the lesson that's in those verses, but I think a lot of times people think, uh, especially when they come to faith in Jesus Christ and they think, all right, you know what, I'm I'm a new Christian. What role do I have in the kingdom of God? What role do I have in the local church as a new Christian? And sometimes people mistakenly think that they need to wait a long time to get plugged in, or they need to wait a long time to figure out a way that they can serve. And, uh, and you look at this context here. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And what does she do immediately? She begins serving. Well, when we came to faith in Jesus Christ, what has he done to us and done for us? He's healed us, hasn't he? He's healed us of the, the infirmity of being a slave to sin. He's healed us. And I think to myself, how many of us think we have to wait forever to start serving? You don't have to wait forever to start serving. One of the best things we could do, though, is partner up with someone that's been part of the, the, the church family for a longer period of time and give them the opportunity to help disciple us and encourage us in our walk with the Lord. But we don't have to wait a long time to get involved or begin serving. And here you see Peter's mother, his mother-in-law, right after she's healed, she looks for an opportunity to serve. She's so grateful. I think that's a beautiful thing. Now, when you jump down into verse... Uh, 32 and 34, the scripture continues and says, so that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. So word is obviously spreading rapidly. It says, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So again, while Jesus was healing Peter's mother-in-law, word of his authority over illness and Demonic oppression, it begins spreading, and, it, and the scripture here tells us that it's sundown, so this is when the Sabbath day uh, was considered over. So this would be early on a, a Saturday evening This would be around six-ish p.m. A large crowd now starts to gather outside of Peter's house. So word is obviously spread, and they bring with them all their sick relatives. They bring with them all their sick friends, large crowd, right? Everybody's there. They even brought those who were dealing with various forms of demonic spiritual oppression. By the way, in our culture, we, we tend to downplay that aspect of what sometimes takes place in this world, and we think, oh, you know, like during that era, they just called illnesses demonic, uh, you know, possession or oppression because maybe they were superstitious, and I think the devil loves when we do that because we, minute, we we totally ignore what's going on in the spiritual reality, and we'll be like, yeah, that's, that, that's not really going on. How often do you hear that as like a medical diagnosis? Do you ever hear a doctor say, yeah, I think this person's demonically oppressed? <laughs> I've never heard a doctor say that. Maybe some do, I don't know. Um, actually, I know some do, but regardless. Uh, I look at that, and I think sometimes we, we downplay that. I have to tell you, I've spent a lot of time Uh, through the years, my master's degree is in counseling. And so when you counsel people a lot, sometimes you wonder what's going on behind the scenes. And I've seen some things over the course of the past 25 years of serving in this role that I look at and I'm like, this is a form of spiritual oppression sometimes. Sometimes people look at these things and they say, maybe maybe there's just like, you know, a simple behavioral fix or medicinal fix, and sometimes that's not what fixes it. Sometimes there's spiritual things going on, that, that people just miss. I remember at one point I, I spent some time visiting somebody in um, a care facility for those that were dealing with some very, very severe forms of mental um, illness and, and uh, all sorts of difficulties. And I remember as the longer I spent there, the more I started to get that, you know, you would say in some respects maybe like a subjective sense, like there's more than meets the eye that's going on here. And I started noticing things that I was like, you know what, I I don't know how often prayer is being used as part of the regimen in this context, but somebody needs to be praying for these people because I think in many respects here, there are people dealing with spiritual things that are flying under the radar because no one's calling it that. And I remember in that context, praying and praying and just praying that the Lord would, would bring healing and release in that context. And I remember that particular day going home and just feeling worn out for the rest of the day, and even feeling a bit depressed. So it's like, that's a very, very hard thing to see, and a very hard thing to experience. And you can imagine, as people living in this era, we're so blessed to live in the era that we live in, where we have medicines for so many helpful things, and good uh, medical care, and and all sorts of things that have been discovered and invented and are readily available to us in our culture, that sometimes we could take the desperation that this group of people had, we could take it for granted. Because could you imagine things that we think are simple, like leprosy, right? Many of these people during that era of time were dealing with leprosy. Well, in our day and age, we have ways to treat that. In that day and age, if you got leprosy, what was that? It was a death sentence, and it was an isolation sentence. You had to get away from everybody, and you were as good as dead as your body literally fell apart. And imagine your best friend, or your spouse, or your child, or a parent, Dealing with some of these things, and you're looking at this, and you're like, There is no known way that we can help these people. The only thing that can help them is a miracle. And then you encounter Jesus, and you see Jesus miraculously healing people of things that everybody has just written off and said there is no hope for that person. And then Jesus shows up and says, I'll heal them. Do you think word would would spread? If you were desperate enough, do you think word would spread? Do you think if you're desperate enough, you'd find a way to get there to this guy and at least give it a shot? and just see, like, maybe he'll heal me, maybe he'll do something for me, maybe he won't, and if he won't, well, worst case scenario, I just went on a long walk, and I got to hang out with some people I love, best case scenario, he heals me, and I go forth whole, and they brought people who were dealing with all sorts of medical issues, and, all, and people dealing with all forms of spiritual oppression, oppressed by demons, and I think others just showed up just to see what would happen. There's no TV back then, right? So you just got to go see what's going on live in person. And so they showed up just to see what Jesus would do for these people or to bring these people to him, and they watched Jesus heal the sick, and they watched Jesus heal the demonically oppressed, and it was a magnificent demonstration of Christ's authority and Christ's power. But it's one thing to read about these events in Scripture, and it's another thing to internalize their meaning. Jesus didn't just do these things for the attention of, of the generation that lived a couple thousand years ago when this this event was recorded. He did these things to grab our attention as well so that there would be no doubt in our minds and in our hearts about who Jesus is and what he wants to do for us and what it actually means to recognize his authority in our lives. That is a big shift. That's a big shift if you go from basically attempting to call the shots in your own life and saying, I am the authority In my life, that's what I've tried to do in so many contexts of life. Tried to say, I'm the authority in my life. There's a big mindset shift when we go from saying, you know what? I used to call the shots in my life, and now I recognize, no, Christ is the authority in my life. And he sees things and knows things and accomplishes things that are outside of my wisdom, and I need his guidance. I need his protective direction. I think it's a natural posture of the human heart to question and rebel against the authority of Jesus. But what has Christ done? He demonstrates that his authority can be trusted. And by the way, we've all spent time, we've all spent time questioning his authority. But the way to live a full, abundant, and joyful life, Jesus promises that he is the way to those things. Living a life distant from the one who spoke creation into existence is not going to fill the void that all of us have in our heart. We're never going to find peace through rebellion. We're never going to find joy through fighting with our Savior and our God. If it's your desire to live a life that is not characterized by distance from your Creator, or the negative influence of demonic forces, or the confusion that comes when you just try and live life in isolation or by yourself, I would encourage you to stop fighting the authority of Jesus. Recognize his authority, welcome his authority, respect his authority, embrace his authority, and live in the spiritual freedom that he graciously grants to anyone who will trust in him. I think these are the things that Christ was trying to illustrate in these examples early here in the Gospel of Mark, and this is an invitation that's open to each of us today. And by the grace of God, I hope that that's something that we would joyfully receive. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for who you are and for what you do in our lives and for how you accomplish so many things in our day-to-day experience that Apart from your intervention, we would be lost. We would be distant. We would be stuck. Lord, I'm just so grateful for the things that we have the privilege to read in your word, things that you did for generations that lived a long time ago. The miraculous healing that you accomplished, the ways that you freed people from just the deception of evil or demonic oppression. The ways in which you showed people that you were what their hearts are looking for. So, Lord, we pray that you would do the same for us. Lord, you know where our minds and our hearts are at. You know the, the story with each and every person, whether adult or child that's here in this room or, or listening to us online or wherever they're hearing these words proclaimed. Lord, you know where our hearts and our minds are at. And so, Lord, we We just ask for your intervention. We pray that if our hearts have been hardened against you, that you would soften our hearts so that we would actually see who you are and what you do, that we would welcome you in our life, that we wouldn't fight your authority, but that we would joyfully accept your intervention and welcome your presence with us. Lord, we pray that you would reveal your truth to us. We pray that we would understand that you are compassionate. And that you invite people unto yourself and that we don't have to deserve just the the privilege of being in your presence. This isn't a matter of us deserving it or earning it. Lord, we know that there are so many people in this world that even acknowledge that that you're offering that, but they seem to have this desire to punish themselves because of maybe something from their past or something that they struggle to forgive themselves of. And so, Lord, we pray that if anyone be struggling with something like that today, that you would just release that from their mind, that those clouds would just be taken away, and that you'd help them to see you with clarity and honesty and with purity, and that they would recognize who you are and what, they, what you desired to do for them. Lord, thank you for what you did in the, in the midst of these crowds outside of Peter's house and in the synagogue at Capernaum. Lord, we're just so grateful to be able to read these things and be encouraged by them. But Lord, in our context here, we pray that you would do the same for us. We commit ourselves to your care. We thank you for your presence. We love you, Lord, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.